I don't know how much you can relate to the feeling of having to prove yourself to people. My memories of having to prove myself go pretty far back, and I may have told this story before, but I tried to look back on my sermon notes, and I couldn't find it, but you may have heard it, so that's my disclaimer. But um, growing up in the school that I went to, it was a British system, so 10th, 11th grade, you study for two years. Nothing you do those two years count towards your grade, and then you take one exam for each subject, and that's your whole grade. So lots of pressure on these eight or nine exams you take for each of the subjects uh, at the end of 11th grade. And so it's very stressful, it's a big deal, you know, determines kind of what you move on to in the next stage of high school. So I remember, you know, you, you take these exams and then they send them away to get graded and you wait all summer long to get the results back. And I remember I got the result, first five grades back uh, and waiting to hear three, three more. And I got all A's, so I was very, very excited. And so I called my mom up at work and I said, Mom, like, I got my grades back and they're all A's. You know, and I'm, I'm expecting some encouragement, some good job, hey, proud of you, son, something along those lines. And what I got was, oh, that's not bad. And I was just crushed. I was like, I said, and I don't usually talk back to my parents, I said, what do you mean not bad? Like, I literally cannot do any better than this. And I was so discouraged by their response. But that little picture from 11th grade is a picture of how, for a lot of my early life, I was trying to prove my worth to my parents by my academics, which sounds very stereotypical Asian, and so I fall into that for sure. But I think we all struggle with that in some way, shape, or form of wanting to prove ourselves to someone. It, it may be your parents like it was for me. It may be someone else in your life. It may be God. It may be you feel like you have to prove yourself to God. And in today's passage, we look at this, this key text again that's about being saved by grace through faith. And really, it can be boiled down to this, that you, Christian, are reckoned righteous in Christ. Therefore, you have nothing to prove. You are reckoned as righteous in Christ. Therefore, you have nothing to prove. And that is just a reality of faith that we have to catch up to in the course of our journey as a Christian. But let's dive into today's text to, to explore that a little bit more. But I'm going to go back a little bit in Romans to Romans chapter 2 to set the scene a little bit. I want to start with Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And it says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And in this just one verse, we are reminded that all humans share in brokenness that is exemplified by our judginess. And I know that's not a real word, but it's a good word. Judginess should be added to the dictionary because we know what that means and we know that it exists in our hearts. Have you met any person who can genuinely say that they've never thought or said anything judgy? Could you look me in the face and say, Didi, I have never had a judgy thought or word to anyone? 
I don't think so. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have a lot of judgy thoughts and even words that on a pretty regular basis, those kinds of things go through our mind or out of our mouth. It's even quite contradictory in that someone who would say they struggle with low self-esteem could at the very same time have very judgy thoughts towards other people. That doesn't seem to go together. If you don't think very highly of yourself, why would you then have judgy thoughts that say you're better than someone else? But we do, right? Those of us who can relate to a sense of low esteem, we know we're not immune to having judgy thoughts just because we don't think any high, very highly of ourselves. Perhaps that's the very motivation to be judgy of other people just to make ourselves feel a little bit better. Look, I grew up in a city where at best, 10% of the people profess to be Christian, and I mean Christian in the broadest, most generous definition of that word. And I'm under no illusion that anyone should be expected to believe in Jesus. I'm not under any illusion that there isn't a constant battle of beliefs and ideologies in this world. That is just the reality. So now we live in what many say, and I think Iowa City is a good example of that, in a post-Christian pluralistic society where there's many different definitions, different definitions for what is good. And we spend a lot of time arguing about what is good. The progressive might define goodness as equal outcome for everyone. The conservative might define goodness as taking responsibility for your actions. The Christian might define goodness as bringing glory to God. The Buddhist might define goodness as having a sense of serenity at all costs. The Muslim might define goodness as a commitment to holiness. The secularist might define goodness as consistent separation of religion and government. And what Paul says here, chapter 2, verse 1, is, dude, he says dude sometimes, don't make excuses. We're all hypocrites. We're all judgy. We condemn people for things that we fail to do ourselves. We define goodness in a certain way, and we can't even live up to our own definition of what is good. Paul is simply trying to make the point that whether you're a Jew or not Jew, whether you believe in the Old Testament laws or not, whether you understand the laws or have never been exposed to them, that you have a standard of good that you measure other people by and that you have failed to live up to yourself. And so our judgy hearts are the best evidence of our brokenness as a human race, because we can all relate to that. And I wonder, you know, just because politics is so hot right now, that what if we started our politics with this truth that Paul states in this one verse? What if we can begin our discussions of politics of, okay, all of you, get off your high horse. We're all hypocrites. We're all a bit judgy. We're all just trying to seek good for the society, and we've defined it differently. Now let's have a discussion. Instead, right, we start with, I'm right. You're the reason why this country is going down the drain. You're a hypocrite. I have every reason to blast you. You're canceled. It's exhausting, right, to live in this way. It's depressing a little bit. Sometimes it feels like let's just nuke the planet because we're just backbiting against one another all the time instead of working together for good in some ways. Everyone 
has to check our judgy hearts. And I've said this many times, the belief of sin, the recognition of sin, is the great equalizer. And the greatest equalizer is knowing that we all need Jesus together. We're all in the same boat. Our judgy hearts betray our brokenness, our sinfulness. We're all broken. We all need Jesus. And Paul goes on to say, even, verse 14, chapter 2, for when Gentiles who do not... Okay, remember, the Jews don't have a very high view of the Gentiles, right? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Right? Paul's anticipating objections from Jews. And Paul goes on to say, and feel free to swap in non-Christian for non-Jew here, the non-Jews lack knowledge and adherence to God's laws as revealed in the Old Testament. And in fact, they still seek to do good, even though they don't know the law and they don't try to adhere to it. These non-Jews still have a sense of right and wrong written on their hearts. These non-Jews still have a conscience. These non-Jews are still conflicted by their own lack of clarity about God's law, whether they recognize that law exists or not. They simultaneously feel their conscience accusing them of not living up to God's law and also trying to excuse themselves from not living up to God's law. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in God's law as Christians or as, as, as non-Christians or, or, or Gentiles because if God is real, we are made in his image and his law, though marred, is still reflected in who we are as human beings. We can believe as reformed people in total depravity. That doesn't mean that we can't see God's goodness in every single human being around us. Which brings us to this main text that we look at today in Romans 4. And roughly speaking, Romans chapter 1 introduces the theme of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2 tells us, as you saw, we all have judgy hearts, we're all broken, we all need Jesus. Romans chapter 3 introduces the idea of all of humanity needs to be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And now Romans chapter 4 is essentially an extended illustration from the Old Testament, an illustration of how we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ. And in fact, this illustration draws from two of the most important figures in the Old Testament, the father of Israel, Abraham, and the greatest king of Israelite history, King David. And essentially, Paul saying, if Abraham was saved by grace through faith, then we too need to be saved by grace through faith. If King David was saved by grace through faith, then we too need to be saved by grace through faith. Let me talk about Lent for just a second, and you'll see where it fits in. It's Lent. Maybe I would ask you, and you don't have to answer, 
What are you giving up for Lent? That's a common question that is asked if you at least grew up in a tradition that practiced Lent and practiced a tradition of giving up, fasting in some way during the Lent season. One year, um, our family decided to, after some discussion, just the one week leading up to Easter, that we would give up using electric lights, which was quite amusing and profound at the same time. Because surprisingly, it's quite difficult to not use electric lights. We did allow ourselves flashlights because we realized groping around in the dark is quite dangerous and you can, you know, bang some knees pretty hard against things. But because it was surprisingly difficult, it was a good reminder that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light who comes in the darkness. And we haven't given up anything for Lent yet this year. And again, I wonder what you're doing. But depending on our heart posture, this practice, this Christian ritual, if you will, of giving something up for Lent, fasting in some way during Lent, can become a thing where we feel like it earns us something in the eyes of God. Now, we would never say it, and barely would we be honest to ourselves about it, where we would say, God, look at what I'm doing. I haven't eaten meat in 19 days. Surely, you know I love you, because I love my steak. It's as if we imagine God in heaven commenting, good job, Danny boy. You haven't eaten steak in 19 days. Or, you're definitely going to heaven now, now that you haven't had steak for 19 days. Or, you're definitely going to get some extra treasures in heaven because of how you're fasting. It sounds ridiculous, right, when we say it out loud in this way. But often, functionally, there is something in us that thinks, because of our fasting in whatever way, that maybe God notices and is a little bit more pleased with us because of this thing that we're giving up. There's something in us that wants to prove to God, God, look how much I love you, to prove to our Christian community that we're a good Christian, or maybe just prove to ourselves that we really do believe in Jesus. And in this illustration in Romans chapter 4, Paul's really just trying to get at that thing in our heart that brokenness in us that is so determined to prove ourselves to God, to ourselves, and to the people around us. And there's this one word that is repeated so many times over chapter 4, and it's this word that is translated counted, that we're counted righteous. It's the theme word of this chapter, and it's in other translations it's tra- translated reckoned, reckoned righteous, or credited at righteous, or considered righteous. And so this Greek word, logizomai, can be translated counted, reckoned, credited, considered. I just like the sound of reckoned. You know, but those four words kind of give us a sense of what God means by the fact that we are reckoned as righteous through faith in Christ. And Paul goes back to the original idea that was found in Genesis 15 where God is telling Abraham this promise that Abraham's offspring was going to be as numerous as stars in the sky. And Abraham believed him. And God said, because you believed, I reckon you as righteous. You've been reckoned righteous. 
not because of all the good you've done, but because of your faith in my promise. Now we see that this word, again, reckoned is used in other um, parts in the Old Testament. We can find that particularly in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament that gives us, again, a sense of the word. So just a couple of examples. Genesis 38, 15, it says, When Judah saw her, Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So the idea here is he thought she was a prostitute, but she was not. In 1 Samuel 1, it says, uh, 1.13, it says, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her, so the word is took here, took her to be a drunken woman. So this word took, again, is he reckoned her as drunk, but actually she wasn't. Or in Job chapter 13, verse 24, it says, Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Job Speaking to God here, why do you reckon me as an enemy when I am not your enemy? So these three examples and the usage of it in, in, with Abraham and, and with Paul, it teaches us that when we are counted or reckoned or considered or credited as being something, that we are actually not that thing. When we are reckoned as righteous, we are actually not righteous. And that makes it that much more amazing when we can realize the truth of that. We are reckoned as righteous in God's eyes, even though we are far, far from that. So let's hear from chapter 4 here a few of those examples. Chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we see just in those two verses, verses 3 and 5, this truth told to us that if we trust Jesus and what he has done, we are reckoned as righteous. We who are judgy at heart, we who are broken, we are reckoned as righteous. But we also are told this idea in verse 4, that if we think we can impress God with our efforts, our good works, then what we receive from God is not a gift anymore. It cannot be reckoned, cannot be counted as a gift anymore. And the logic that Paul is making here is that we have believed from Old Testament to New Testament deeply that what we have from God is a gift. Why would we then live and act or believe something that takes away the fact that what God gives is a gift? Why would we try to earn something that is a gift? But really, the flip side of that is what Paul's saying in Romans is, you actually can't earn it anyway. You can't earn this righteousness of Christ. Let me ask you, what's 
I don't know, people could answer this differently, but I'm curious as you think in your own head. What's the better thing? To receive the best gift you've ever received that you didn't deserve? Or to receive a reward that you absolutely deserve and worked your butt off for? Which one would you prefer? It's kind of a joy in both, right? But I think back in my own life, the thing that meant the most to me is when I received a gift that I absolutely did not deserve. I'm not even thinking about my relationship with God. I'm just talking about life. When someone gave me something that was so unexpected, so over the top, (laughs) the example that's coming to mind right now is completely silly. My siblings and I don't usually give each other gifts over Christmas. And one year, my little sister gave me a Lego set of the Millennium Falcon. Completely unexpected. Like one of those Lego sets that I would never pay money to buy myself because it's like, whatever, it's like $100. I'm like, I'm not, as an adult, going to pay $100 for Lego. I know some of you might. It's okay. Not judging you, but I couldn't do it myself. And it was so unexpected and received with such great joy. I almost didn't let my kids build it with me, but Jesus said I should, so I did. Paul's telling us two things. That we have to understand that our standing before God has always been a gift. And that secondly, that in fact, we cannot earn this salvation, this standing before God. If you trust in Jesus, you have been reckoned as righteous, able to stand with confidence before God. And therefore, you have nothing left to prove to God, to others, to yourself. But Paul goes on in verse 6 through 8, where he talks about the fact that if you're reckoned as righteous, that your wrongs are not reckoned against you, not counted against you. Verse 6, it says, just as David also speaks of the blessing to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. In verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He moves from Abraham, this example of being reckoned as righteous because of faith in God's promise, to David, speaking in a different sense, in in a sense you could say, a more negative sense. He's pointing now to the fact that we, we are sinful. We do struggle with brokenness. But yet David's, he's quoting from Psalms here, but he's giving the example from David's Psalms how that we, our brokenness, our sins, our our wrongs against God are forgiven by God. And again, going back to the Old Testament, not looking at what Christ has done where it's more clearly put. It is an illustration from David's example that God credits righteousness to David apart from David's goodness. Clearly, it's it's not goodness. He's confessing sin in this psalm. And that verse 8 tells us that the Lord will not never count our sins against us if we have faith 
in Christ. It's this thing we call in theology double imputation to Christ. Our sins are reckoned as Christ's, the sinless saviors. Somehow the one who never sinned has taken on all of the sin of the world. And the other imputation is Christ's righteousness is reckoned as ours. He who lived completely perfectly. His righteousness is reckoned as ours. And that's what gives us the confidence. This is why Jesus went to the cross, to make that exchange, to take our sin, to give us his perfect righteousness. He who had no sin became sin for us. This is the gospel we so cherish. This is the gospel that we commend to others, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to be the atonement for our sins, to be our scapegoat. Our wrongs, all our wrongs in thought, word, and deed have been laid upon Jesus. And Jesus is the one who has been reckoned as the one who was sinful, who died in our place. Our wrongs are not reckoned against us. We are reckoned as the ones who are righteous in Christ. And this was really important, Paul goes on to say, because, because of Abraham's example, because of David's example of being forgiven and counted and his sins not counted against him, therefore, this gospel is for all. He goes on in verses 9 through 12 simply to say, hey, Abraham wasn't circumcised. Jewish people, I know you think circumcision is so important that it is your circumcision that makes you right before God. Abraham wasn't even circumcised. It was 14 years ago that he believed this promise. 14 years before he was circumcised that he believed this promise of God and he was reckoned as righteous because of his faith in the promise of God. That circumcision had no bearing on his trust in God, on his being reckoned as righteous. Do you understand how God sees you. Do you understand that you are reckoned as righteous in the eyes of the holy God? This is not something that changes overnight for us. This is the journey of the Christian faith. The more deeply we grasp and understand the profoundness, the simpleness of this gospel, it is what grounds us and makes us secure in this life. It is what sets us free from having to prove ourselves to whoever. Trying to prove yourself in your industry. Trying to prove yourself to your parents. Trying to prove yourself to God. God, I am lovable. I have earned something in your eyes. And God says no. And you don't need to because of what Christ has done. We've been talking a lot about spiritual warfare, and this is the lie that we live in often, the lie that we need to prove ourselves to others, to ourselves, or to God. It's such a difficult thing to shake in this life. And it could be trying to prove yourself in so many different ways. Sort of depends on how your community defines, again, what goodness is, right? 
It could be having the right views or the right credentials or the right life experiences or the right material stuff or the right knowledge or the right associations with people or the right kind of service or the right cause or the right organization to be a part of. How does your primary community measure orthodoxy? I know you might say, well, this is it. This is my primary community. It might not be. When I say primary, I mean functionally, what is the community that's most important in the way you live out your life? For many, it's, it's our jobs, right? That world often defines for us the kind of orthodoxy, the kind of right living, right belief that we feel like we have to prove to the people around us that, yes, we're doing it. We're living it. Do we realize we're even doing that? I've had the privilege of talking with many of you. You know, we're in a university town trying to do the academia thing where you just feel like, oh, just publishing. Such an awful thing. You might love what you research and study, but the whole publishing system is such slavery. Proving yourself again and again to you don't even know who, but you're trying to do it. The truth of God is this. Jesus tells us there's nothing to prove. I'm not saying don't go publish your papers. I know that's your job. I'm saying your identity is not on the line. Whether that paper gets published or not, whether people give good comments to it or not, This chapter tells us that true blessedness, happiness is found in being reckoned as righteous by Christ. And then that sets us free to live in this world because we know that we are reckoned as good and loved in the eyes of the one that matters most. And when we can grasp that in a deeper and deeper way, we can then live with a freedom and security in this world. You are reckoned as righteous by Christ. You have nothing left to prove. Let's pray.